0: Amen. Amen. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Hey, listen, I really appreciate some of the feedback I've been getting. Uh, just been firing out some emails to do for you to do heart prep and for me to do heart prep as we get ready for Sunday. And so if you're not on our Facebook page... Or if you're not on our church email list, um, you're not getting things like that and not getting updates about what's happening around the church. So make sure you fill out an information response card that's in your program and throw it in one of the offering jars, okay? And we'll get you on that list or you can go on Facebook and just look for CTK Gibsons as a Facebook page and you'll find us. So I appreciate some of that feedback. We have been in 2 Corinthians... For those that are visiting, you're jumping in on a series. And so let me just remind you and remind us as a church, some things that we've been talking about. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is talking about ministry. And he's been talking about the ministry of the spirit, the ministry of the new Testament, the ministry of the new covenant, and that we are ministers and that our sufficiency comes not from ourselves, but from Christ who has made us sufficient. Our effectiveness and our boldness come from this transforming power of Christ's presence within us. And so as we've been seeing in 2 Corinthians, and for those that have been visiting, um, who are visiting, as we behold the glory of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, We are undergoing this spiritual metamorphosis. We are being transformed. We are being conformed into the likeness and the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, you know, as we talk about ministry and when we talk about ministry, it's important that I qualify something here and that we not forget it every time we talk about this. Because sometimes in our human tendency, we limit the definition of ministry to the pulpit and to what the pastor does. And that's a that's a mistake. That's a lie of Satan. We are all ministers. Life is ministry. As followers of Jesus Christ, we must embrace this, this concept that ministry must pervade every part of my life. It's not a switch that I turn on or off. Rather, it's this perpetual state that we live in as Christians. And so how I handle my personal finances is ministry. My role in my family is as a minister in the workplace. I carry the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in my recreation. I am an ambassador for Christ. When no one is looking, I am still the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so are you. And so ministry pervades everything. It can't be turned off. And every person that comes across our path is not a project that we fix, but someone that Christ Jesus died for and whom we are called to love and whom we are called to serve and to whom we represent Christ Jesus. And so life is ministry for all of us. And, you know, if you were here last week or for those who weren't here last week, let me, I'll just tell you this. What we were talking about was As we talked about ministry, we saw this question from the text as we looked at the life of Elijah. Are you in the ministry or are you on the run? And we looked at the life of Elijah and how fear gripped him and how he ran into the wilderness. And we talked about how God will feed his place, even, feed his people, even when they're in the place of discouragement. And he will allow them to go deeper into the valley of discouragement until they come to the end of themselves and learn to sit still. So that they can hear his quiet voice and receive a fresh assignment. And so 2nd Corinthians chapter 4 verse 1 says this. Therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God. We do not lose heart. Paul's reminding the church that the ministry we have received. Is not something that we took on of our own will or our own accord. But rather God gave it to us by an act of his mercy. Ministry and the results of ministry are sourced in the Lord. And so Paul says this, we do not lose heart. And so this morning as we come to the word of God in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I want to point your attention as we work through this chapter to um, five keys to fruitful ministry. Five keys to fruitful ministry. See, ministry should be fruitful. It should be fruitful. Jesus said this, healthy trees bear good fruit. They bear good fruit. Jesus also said in John 15, abide in me. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Or Jesus said this in John 15 verse 8. By this your father in heaven is glorified. That you bear much fruit and show yourselves to be my disciples. Or he said this. You did not choose me but I chose you and I appointed you. That you should go and bear fruit. Fruit that should abide. And so, you know, healthy trees produce good fruit. Or we might say, I like to say, healthy sheep reproduce. And here we are. We're sheep of his pasture. His kids of his kingdom. And there are some keys to us being fruitful. And Paul talks about them in this chapter. Look at verse 2. He says this. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. By the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, before we, you know, see what we should do, Paul is first going to tell us some things that we should turn our back on. And so I would say the first key to fruitful ministry is this renounce, renounce. He says, we renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways. Now, the word renounce has this idea of giving up. Literally, it's like bid it farewell. Disown these hidden shameful things. Um, It's like saying renounce it carries this idea that these acts are actually forbidden. He calls it disgraceful and underhanded hidden things. Things that are concealed. Now I'm not going to park here too long, but you know what? When I started to do a, a study on what it, what disgraceful underhanded ways were, I was shocked at what I began to discover about what it was. See, disgraceful, underhanded techniques are rooted in being ashamed of the gospel. See, shame hides the truth, shame does not want to come into the light. And Paul, when he talks about disgraceful, underhanded ways, is talking about being ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, In our lives, we renounce that. We renounce it. You know, shame uses the back door. Shame sneaks in under the cover of darkness. You know, when I think of being ashamed of Christ, it, it, you know, shame of Christ causes us to act for Christ in secret. And Paul says it's disgraceful and it's underhanded. It's a way that hides Christ Rather than exalts him for all to see. You know I think of when I was thinking about this passage Gideon. Remember the story of Gideon from Judges chapter 6. God called Gideon at a time when the people of Israel were oppressed under the hands of the Midianites. Gideon was living in fear of the Midianites. And in a place of hiding when the Lord sent his angel to him and greeted him with this greeting. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon was literally in hiding. The scripture paints this picture of Gideon that he basically looked over his shoulder, looking for someone else as the angel greeted him. Who, me? Mighty man of valor? Are you joking? I'm the lowest of my family. I'm here in hiding, and you're calling me a mighty man of valor But the Lord commissioned Gideon to go in the strength that he had and to save Israel from the hand of Midian. Now, after Gideon was called by the Lord, do you remember what his first assignment was? The Lord appeared to him a second time in the night. And the Lord said to him, the first assignment was to tear down his father's idols. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down that pole to Asherah that's beside it. Now, that's a dangerous assignment. You know, when you think about it, to to destroy his father's idols and the household gods. But Gideon was given an assignment to win the hearts of Israel for God. And to do so, he had to start in his own home and with his own family and to tear down the idols of his family. And the scripture tells us that because Gideon was afraid of people, do you know what he did? You recall from a story? Under the cover of darkness, he went when no one could see, and he smashed down the altar, and he cut down the pole. I mean, he did the job, but he did it in fear of man and in hiding. And when the people arose and they saw that the altar was broken down and that the Asherah pole was laying on the ground beside beside it, the people asked, who has done this thing? And when they found that Gideon was responsible, they went to the home of his father Joash, and they said, "Your son did this. Give him to us. He deserves to die." And uh, you know the amazing thing is, is that Joash's father stood against the crowd, and he said, "Will you contend for bail, or will you save him? If he is a god, let him defend and contend for himself." See, Gideon did the task, but, but for reason of fear and shame, he did so under the cover of darkness. But you know, the beauty of it was is this, is that when the enemy came to kill him for even that which he had done under the cover of darkness, his father protected him. And you know, when we act for the name of Jesus, our father in heaven too will protect us. Disgraceful Underhanded techniques are rooted in being ashamed of the gospel. And Paul says, "We renounce that. We turn our backs on that. We repent, we give it up, we bid it for farewell, au revoir. no more. Disgraceful underhanded techniques. Fruitful ministry must renounce shame of the gospel. That's what I'm saying to you this morning. It must. You know, I was thinking about it. I just, I desire to walk in the fear of the Lord. And I know that you do too. And all too often, the fear of man grips my heart. I know that it it grips all of our hearts. Sometimes shame of the gospel paralyzes us in ministry as we're out in this community and doing things. And we miss opportunities. It, It happens to me all the time. And the reason why I confess that is that That I know it's something that's common to man, that fear grips our hearts when it comes to the gospel. But that fear hinders the production of fruit. And Paul learned this. He learned this in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, to be able to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. You know, I encourage you to memorize Romans 1 16. Take it to heart. Where there are areas in your life that are disgraceful and underhanded and you're acting in shame of the gospel, renounce it, repent, turn from it, and put the gospel and put Jesus in the forefront in that area of your life. Proclaim him and his kingdom. Identify yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says we renounce it. But the second thing he said is this. We refuse. We refuse. <clears throat> now what did he refuse? Well, 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 actually the idea of refusal is this, it's not willing to do something. Is there anything in your life that you refuse to do? Is there anything? Get dressed. Get dressed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you came dressed today, buddy. <laughs> you know, usually, yeah, you know, usually refusal has something, you know, has to do with feeling that something is beneath us. You know, I've heard people say, I'm not changing a dirty diaper. I don't take out the trash. You know, I refuse to wear that. I'm not getting dressed. We think something is beneath us. You know, I was trying to, I was thinking about something that I refuse. And I, I just got to confess it. I will never wear a Speedo. <laughs> I, I refuse. I refuse. Amen. You know, and that's just not right. <laughs> that's scarring. That's scarring. But you know, the thing is, what one man would never do, another might consider. Isn't that true, Marcus, wherever you are? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was thinking, you know, in my formative years when I was growing up in the 80s, how I loved to mock my dad because of these big lamb chops that he had on the side of his face when he was a young man. I'd laugh, ha, 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 I can't believe you wore those things, ha, 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 and then, you know, I turned 20, and I grew a pair of those lamb chops, too. I said that I refused, but I recanted on that one. But I was just thinking—you know—I was thinking about other things that I refuse. Yeah, you know, I, I like having facial hair, but I consider the mustache a crime against humanity. <laughs> no, I—if I, you're a mustache guy, that's okay. I, I forgive you. <laughs> <And> I <use. laughs> you know, I was—I was thinking about it because Darsum. The other day, I, a few weeks ago, I had like gone for three or four weeks without shaving. And so finally I thought, oh, I'll just take it off and I'm going to leave the mustache. You know, I'm not into the November thing. I just can't do it. The Movember thing. I, I, I really admire you guys who do. And so I came into the kitchen and I got the stash on the go there. And I looked at Jonah. I said, so, what do you think? And uh, my 11-year-old uh, shrugged his shoulders and with a head nod, quietly ano- acknowledged that he thought it was really cool. <laughs> And uh, I was shocked. I went into the washroom and I shaved that thing off immediately. (laughs) Now, Paul says this. There's things in ministry we must refuse. Okay? And one is this. He said, I refuse to practice cunning. I refuse it. I'm not willing to walk in that, he says. We're not willing to make that the pattern of our life. to, To conduct our lives in that matter. What is cunning? Cunning is unscrupulous conduct, craftiness. Literally, it means this, all working. It literally means doing everything to gain advantage. You know, when I consider uh, what it means to use cunning, I think of things like this, using fear, using manipulation, using guilt, using flattery. See, those are human tactics that us as human beings use to gain advantage over one another. And as ministers, our goal isn't actually to gain advantage over people. Look, we're, we're not salesmen. Rather, we, we serve and we love. We serve and we love. And we leave the sales stuff to vacuum salespeople and to multi-level pyramid schemes, you know? We don't practice cunning. We refuse that. We love people and we seek to represent Christ. We refuse to practice cunning. But Paul said there's something else we refuse too. And that's this. We refuse to tamper with God's word. You know tampering has to do with corruption. He's talking about handling God's word deceitfully. To corrupt it by way of being a huckster. I like that word. We don't hucksterize the scripture. <laughs> you know there is a constant pressure on ministers in the pulpit and you as ministers of God in the in this community to tamper with the word of God. But Paul says this ain't an option for us. This is something we refuse. We refuse that temptation. You know, the liberalism within the church is not a new fad. (laughs) For 2,000 years, the church church has faced a battle with those who would diminish the authority and inspiration and inerrancy of the word of God. A couple of years ago, I I pulled up this classic book that that I was told every preacher should read. And it's written by this deceased great British preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And the book was called Preachers and Preaching. And as I read this decades-old book, I was stunned to read the battle of liberal thinking that was within the church of his day and their attempts to tamper with the word of God. I mean, as I read this book that was decades-old, he may as well have been describing the day and age in which we lived, in which we live. See, tampering with the word of God is Satan's first deception. Did God really say He asked Eve and we just can't go there. Paul says we refuse that. It's not God's word that needs to move to suit my fancy. God's word is authoritative and it's inspired by the spirit of God and it's inerrant. And if something needs to give, if the word of God is held up to my life side by side and parallel and something needs to move and give, then it's me not the word of God. I move, I change, I repent, and I don't tamper with the word of God. You know, anywhere you observe a a church where God's word has been tampered with, there you will find fruitless ministry. You will find fruitless ministry. And you know, it's important that we don't mistake activity for fruitfulness. Activity and fruitfulness are two different things. I know I've been reading this other book lately that I've really enjoyed. Is, I, I would say I've enjoyed this book as much as anything that I've ever read. And it's, it's quite a, a fun book. I'd encourage you to get it. It's called 50 People Every Christian Should Know. It's written by Warren Wiersbe. And it's a collection of short biographies uh, of spiritual giants of the faith through the last kind of 500 years. And as I've read through this book, I'm, I'm almost right at the end of it. Of these great spiritual giants. There has been a consistent characteristic. That's come out about these men and women. That I've seen in their ministries. And it's this. They did not tamper with the word of God. They proclaim God's word. With exclamation points. Rather than with question marks. And in his refusal. To use cunning. In his refusal to tamper with God's word. And his renouncement. Of dishonest, underhanded ways, Paul tells us what we should do. He says this, by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The open statement of truth. See, our ministry as the church and as ministers, as God's people, is this. We uncover. (laughs) We lay bare. We reveal and Bring revelation and a manifestation of truth. That's why the scripture says the church is the pillar and buttress of truth. The foundation of truth. You recall what Pilate asked Jesus at that famous trial? What is truth? You can hear the sneer in his voice as you read it in the scriptures. And what did Jesus say? Anyone who hears my voice hears the truth. See, truth refers to what is true in things pertaining to God and pertaining to the duties of man. And Paul says we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. See, when we proclaim truth, what are we appealing to? We're not wrestling, Paul says, for man's carnal judgments. But we're appealing to the conscience. We appeal to... To the conscience, to that inner place of knowing that gives witness to the truth of God and the truth of human conduct. The conscience is that inner faculty by which mankind comprehends God. With our conscience, we distinguish between good and evil. With our conscience, we sense the guiltiness of sin. And Paul says, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, commend is an interesting word. It means this, to set beside, to set it beside. We set truth beside the human conscience. And what happens when truth is set beside the conscience? The conscience weighs one's life against the truth of God's word in that inner, invisible scale. And the conscience recognizes that there is an imbalance. And the weight is in favor of God Almighty. As the word of God is proclaimed in open statement of truth, the Holy Spirit brings conviction in regards to sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. See, the word of God is powerful. It is powerful, and when we simply state what it says, it changes lives. You know, sometimes it's really uncomfortable, isn't it? You read things in the Bible. I mean, there are things, there's times when I get up here, and I am sweating, saying stuff. It's uncomfortable from time to time. But, you know, we must remember that it's a matter of life and death. See, this is not a Band-Aid. It's a defibrillator. This is electric shock, Austin, to wake up your conscience. (laughs) They'll give shock to wake up your heart, but this will give a shock to wake up your conscience. And Paul says this, nothing escapes the eyes of God. We do this in the sight of God. See, our conduct as ministers happens in the sight of God. Everything that goes on in my conscience does not escape God's sight. God is watching. and His word tells us that his eyes are ranging to and fro the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Verse three, Paul says this, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. You know, as the people of Israel were led under the command of Moses. Out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery. They were led by the pillar of cloud. Which was the glory of God in their midst. But as you read that story in Exodus. There's a point where the pillar moves from in front of the people. To their backs. And Moses continues to lead them. And on one side of the cloud, it's light for the people of Israel. And on the other side of the cloud, it's darkness for the people of Egypt. The same cloud of glory was light to the people of God. And that same cloud of glory was darkness for the Egyptian armies. That's what the gospel is like. Light for those who see it and who see Christ and darkness for those who do not. The gospel is a light. You know, I read on Friday um, a blog that was reprinted in the sports section. Anybody read that blog? About David Booth from the Vancouver Canucks? It's worth going and checking out. And uh, this blogger whose blog was reprinted in the province blasted David Booth. It went viral online, and so the province reprinted it. He blasted David Booth for his Christian tweets on his Twitter account. And with clarity, I would say, and with seeming logic, that blogger essentially defaced Christian values. Uh, With his higher humanistic thinking, he called Christianity a thing of the dark ages. And he blasted David Booth. I prayed for that man as I read that blog. But who is in darkness? who really is in darkness. See for one, the gospel is light. And for those whose eyes are blinded, it is darkness. The gospel is a light that illuminates the good news of the kingdom of God and the salvation of Christ received by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ on the basis of his death and his burial and his resurrection, the proclamation of God's grace, The proclamation of God's love is good news. See, the glory that Paul is talking about speaks of God's splendor, God's brightness, God's majesty. And Paul says this, that that majesty and splendor and and brightness that belongs to God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the image of God. Philip asked Jesus, he said, Lord, show us the father and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? That brings us to the next key to fruitful ministry. It's this reveal. Look at verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. See, we proclaim Jesus as Lord. Proclaim, reveal, herald, preach. See, the herald makes known the identity of the Lord Jesus. He is Lord. The title Lord implies that Jesus is God. It's just inherent in calling him Lord. It implies that he is God. That title identifies him with the creator. The scripture says, from him and to him and through him be all things. Jesus is Lord. Have you looked at the scoreboard lately? You can attempt to remove the name of Christ from Christmas. You can slander his followers in a blog. You can use his name as a cuss word. You can, rem- you can write movies that defame his life and character. But Jesus wins every time. He wins every time. His kingdom advances and his coming is Sure. Jesus is winning in the face of human resistance and satanic schemes. He is Lord. It's fun to just watch what's happening in our culture as the battle goes on for Christmas and having Christ in Christmas. I mean, even if they don't want to talk about, even if they don't want to have his name in there, they can't help but talk about him. He's winning. He is winning. And so in fruitful ministry, Paul says this, we don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ. We don't build with our personalities. In fact, I would say that God even humbles those who would build their ministry by proclaiming themselves. I mean, we see that, don't we? The big church televangelist thing. You know, God certainly uses our personalities, but for the purpose of his son being proclaimed, Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. I, I, I hope that he's your Lord. I hope you know that he loves you. I hope you know that he came as the Christ child for you. He gave his life as a ransom for sin and for your rescue. He died on that cross. He was buried, but the scripture tells us that death had no hold on him because he was sinless and he was perfect. And his father raised him from the dead. And the scripture says that if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Jesus is Lord. And Paul said, so we make ourselves your servants for his sake. That's ministry. We make ourselves the servant, Of all for the sake of Jesus Christ. Verse six is this. For God who said "Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God has shone his light in our hearts. And the physical world must answer to the spiritual world. He spoke his word to our hearts and we surrender our lives to him. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God comes in the face of Jesus. I mean, that is like, that is a life worth of messages right there. I don't know what to say. (laughs) Jesus is the manifestation of the glory of God. He is the image of God. Philip, have I been with you so long? (laughs) and you still don't know me to see me is to see the father. See the only true and full manifestation of God's light and glory is the face of Jesus Christ. As Hebrews chapter one, verse three tells us the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sin, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Church, we need to learn to behold the face of Lord Jesus Christ. You know, what do you see about the nature of God in the face of Jesus? I mean, obviously it's Christmas season. It's natural to think of Jesus as that infant child, that baby. You know, in the Christmas story, what do you see in the face of baby Jesus? You know, I was thinking about it. You know what I see? A number of different things. I mean, it's kind of endless, but humility. I mean, a baby? God, seriously? Seriously, a baby. That the creator would come in such a humble form. I, I mean, he really, he could never have come in a more humble form than a child. A helpless Dependent on his mother, baby, the king of the universe, confined to this little physical, fleshly body. I see meekness. You know, don't mistake meekness for weakness. Meekness is never weakness. But meekness speaks of power under control. I, you know, I think of like a, I always think of a powerful warhorse when I think of the word meekness but controlled by the slightest of bridal. And we're talking about the greatest power of the universe in this baby, meekness. I think of love. Of course, Jesus came as the greatest expression of God's love. The Christ child, I would say, reveals this, though. Not just God's love but it reveals that God's love is to be, he reveals that God's love is to be reciprocated. We cherish our babies. Look what we did with Hannah this morning. You cherish a baby. Babies need to be loved. We love them. And Jesus reveals that, that baby Jesus in that manger reveals the desire of God's heart to be loved by his creation. I think of gentleness when I look at Jesus. You know, God could have expressed himself in many other ways, power, anger. But to me, a baby speaks of the gentle way in which God would desire to woo your heart and win you. He could bull you over. He's God. He could run you over like a freight train but he'd rather win you with his love. See, fruitful ministry reveals the nature and glory of Jesus as Lord. Pull off the cover. Look at Jesus. Another key to ministry is seen in verse 7. I called it this, recognize. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Treasures in jars of clay. You know, I was thinking, jars of clay, that'd be a catchy name for a contemporary Christian musical group. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good idea. Uh, one of the marvelous proofs of God's power is that, that human earthly vessels... Can contain the glory and the power of like Jesus indwells us. He lives in us. The person of the Lord Jesus that God would put such a treasure in us. Human jars of clay. You know, I mentioned Gideon from the book of judges earlier and Gideon, you know, did by God's power, lead the people out people of Israel out from the oppressive hand of Israel and uh, uh, the oppressive hand of the Midianites. Sorry. And if you recall the story, after his army was whittled down to nothing by the Lord, and Gideon had just 300 men, he equipped each of them with a jar of clay, a a lit torch, a light, and a trumpet. And those 300 men uh, gathered around the armies of Midian on the hillside around them. And at Gideon's command, they smashed that clay jar Uh, revealing their torches. They blew their trumpets and they shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And the Midianites woke to mass confusion and they fled for their lives, believing that they were outnumbered and surrounded. And they were because God was on the side of the Israelites. And, you know, as you think about that story, the light in Gideon's jar, it's it's a type, it's a picture for us. It's a symbolic picture of the treasure that is within us. Within every person in whom Christ dwells. And Gideon instructed his men. Smash the pitcher. Smash the pitcher and the enemy will flee. And the light will be seen. See the enemy flees when God's people. Smash the pitcher of their flesh. And they let Jesus Christ shine. Paul says God put this power in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to him and not to us. And Paul says, we're verse eight. We're, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body, the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. You know, this verse kind of just expresses pretty powerfully the inward and the outward distresses that we go through as we serve the Lord and try to live this life. But the cool thing is this kind of the the first part of each one of those statements, the first clause, you know, just implies the earthliness of the vessel. But the second clause implies the excellency of the power that is contained within jars of clay but presence of God. And the power belongs to him. That brings us to the fifth key to fruitful ministry. Last one was recognized. This one is resurrection. Resurrection. Verse 10. Always carrying in the body, the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So you bear wherever you go, the image of the suffering savior in your person. When Paul says that you carry around in your body the death of Jesus, he is literally saying that you are being put to death. That you are in the state of dying. That you are being put to death. And Paul regarded his body as a corpse. A corpse that shares in the life-giving power of Jesus' resurrection. Yes, we share in his death but we also share in his resurrection and in the power of the resurrection. Verse 11, he says this for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus sake. So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. See, there are two parts to this resurrection point that I would say. The first is this. You must die to your flesh. You know, really? Oh man, this is the painful part of Fruitful ministry. <laughs> this is where the rubber meets the road. You know, this is the cost. In terms of application, this is it right here. Will I pick up my cross daily to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? And Let me ask you. Is the life of Jesus Christ being revealed through you? I, like I said, this is where this thing gets costly. There is a price to pay for being fruitful. Why is that? Why the cost? I read, I read something really cool from Alan Redpath, and I just want to read it to you. He says this. Why the cost? Because the whole principle of Christian living is contrary to the principle on which everyone else lives. The principle of this world is self-glorification. The principle of the Christian is crucify yourself. The principle of men is greatness, bigness, pomp, and show. The principle of the cross is death. Therefore, whenever a man has seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and recognizes that this is for communication to let your light shine at once. He comes into a head on collision with his own personal living with all of the principles and motives by which he has lived up until this moment for you see, if there is to be a continual manifestation of Holy spirit life, there must be constant submission to the crucifixion of the flesh. Not simply sometimes but always we are being given over to death for Jesus sake, but our flesh is given over to death for a purpose that Christ would come forth to the front and that people would see the light of who Jesus is, that his life may be manifested in the mortal flesh. What's Paul saying? He's saying this, Man, we get knocked down, but we're never knocked out. We die. The fact of a dying corpse being sustained reveals that the resurrection... I mean, do you ever wonder how your life is sustained? How is your life sustained? The midst of things that are going on in your family and in your home and in your finances and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. How is your life sustained? Being sustained. Jesus Christ is exerting his power in you. Die to your flesh. Smash the jar. And let the light shine. The risen living savior. As well as that suffering savior. So Paul says in verse 12. So death is at work in you. But, li- but death is at work in us. But life in you. Resurrection. Die to the flesh. But the second point I would say of the resurrection is this. Last point. Live the life of faith. Die to the flesh, but live the life of faith. Check out verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. See the life of faith communicates Jesus Christ. How? With its mouth. With its mouth, it proclaims Jesus as Lord. We die to the flesh, but we enter in to the life of faith. Let's read the, just the last couple of verses here. We'll wrap up at verse 16. For it is all for your sake, so that grace extends to more and more people, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God, so we do not lose heart. Though, though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your death, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, that you identified with us. You were not willing that any should perish. And and you came as a rescue for us, Lord. You took on human flesh and in the form of a child, you humbled yourself. You came meekly, revealing the love and gentleness of God. And we thank you, Jesus, that you have won our hearts. Jesus, today, again, in a fresh way, we, re- we respond and surrender to your love and to your grace. Jesus, in our desire to be fruitful for you, to be fruitful in our homes, to be fruitful in our workplaces, to be fruitful with our neighbors, for the glory of your name, we pray that you would crucify our flesh, that our lives would be offered to you. We pray, God, that we would pick up our cross and follow after you. Jesus, I pray that as we do that, with increasing glory, that we would see the face of Jesus Christ, that we would grow in the knowledge of your glory. I pray that as we die, Jesus, that, increasing way, that in increasing ways in our church there would be a manifestation of resurrection life that the jar would smash and that the light of Christ would shine in us. Jesus, we offer ourselves to you this morning for ministry. God, the rest of this day, there's lots of hours left, family around, Christmas stuff going on. Would you order our steps? Would you direct our paths? Would you show us where you're calling us to shine the light of the Lord Jesus Christ? We thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. Transform our hearts by its power, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.